Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by returning guests, Dr. Todd Shackelford and Dr. Viviana Wick Shackelford. Dr. Todd, uh, Todd has already been with us two times before, and Viviana, I've interviewed her one time. So, and they are both from Oakland University. So, guys, welcome to the show again, and thank you again for taking the time. Thank you for having us. Yep, yeah. our pleasure. Okay, so, uh, I mean, we've decided uh, between us to talk a little bit about uh, today about uh, what happens with people and their mating lives after they have children, right? So, because I guess that's a very interesting topic to explore and I have yet to talk about it with anyone from evolutionary psychology and even psychology in general for that matter. So, uh, okay, so the first question I would like to ask you is, uh, do we know in evolutionary psychology if there are any trade-offs that people consider after they have had children in terms of uh, mating and sexuality? Certainly. Well, <clears throat> of course, the a major trade-off is, well, it's just uh, between um, investing in parenting. I'm sorry, you wanted me to speak to the issue of after having kids. Yeah. So uh, there's a fundamental trade-off between uh, parenting and that is investing in parenting and investing in mating. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of work in both humans and non-humans um, on this issue. And I mean, the bottom line is the more time and effort and attention is invested in mating or seeking mates um, or uh, the less time there can be for investing in children. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, but it's a broad way of thinking about a very basic trade-off. That is one between parenting and mating. And so I mean, you mentioned uh, that we've been thinking for, for many years um, about you know, whether or not um, psychology, or human psychology, uh, might be sensitive to whether or not one does have children. I mean, it seems like it certainly should be the case. I mean, having and raising children is a, is a major set of adaptive problems. And we wondered, beginning many years ago, whether or not um, having children might actually impact um, people's efforts or attempts at mating, um, particularly when the mateship that produced those children, for example, may have dissolved. Um, and the question is whether or not the same psychology continues to operate. So it's, yes, I mean, the bottom line is it's riddled with, um, you know, mating and parenting are, you know, two very broad sets of adaptive problems that uh, a lot of previous work suggests there are important trade-offs. And we've begun sort of thinking about applying this to human uh, psychology in a way that we don't think others have um, previously, or at least infrequently. Um, I don't know if you want yeah. to add to that. Yeah, so yeah, that's actually what I was going to contribute there. That um, so for I don't know when I was introduced to evolutionary psychology, I think that um, you know thinking about parenting and mating effort, it's you know sort of this dichotomous relationship, right, or lack of a relationship, and um, so yeah, we started talking and thinking about well, you know maybe it's not so clean. Uh, you know, once you have children, right? So it can't be the case that you're doing 
one or the other, meaning you're not doing the other one, you know, at all. And so we began, you know, that line of questioning. So how does, um, you know, you know, someone having a child, how does that impact their dating and uh, dating or mating or, um, you know, relationship activity after having children or after being divorced? Um, and um, just with, you know, anecdotal um, references that we discussed, there are many single moms and dads who are dating, right? Um, you know, dating goes on after having children, sex goes on after having children. Um, there's some uh, research that we collected, some data many years ago on older people, older couples, and it's like this whole new, a whole new world of, you know, sexual activity and gossip and everything going on even in older age, right? So, it, you know, so that, you know, together we sort of continue to explore this idea, like, you know, there must be, um, you know, more to this than, okay, well, that's it, a woman has children, and she's out the mating market. She might be at a different level of the mating market, but there's still something going on there. Mm -hmm. So there's a very interesting bit there that you said, Viviana, where you referred to the fact that, I guess, you're not considering the possibility that after having children, uh, people s uh, completely put aside their mating and sexual lives. Uh, I mean, we're when we're talking about trade-offs here, is more in terms of okay, what is the percentage of the time maybe that people devote to uh, looking for mates if they don't have one, or dedicating some time to their own mate or to sexual activity and the percentage the percentage of time and effort that they put into parenting yeah absolutely and so the case that you know if a woman has a child you know she's out of the mating market i would say it's the complete opposite it's in her interest to secure you know more resources and ensure that she's you know uh, you know obtains resources and support um until the child reaches reproductive age, right? Um, but I do have to say that it's not that it's a necessity. And again, I'm, I'm speaking to the sort of um, moral and uh, environment that we're in right now, that it's not that a woman needs a man to take care of her child, of course, but so we're speaking in terms of you know, evolutionarily and theoretically speaking, you know, uh, on average, it might have been better for women um, ancestrally to have a mate or at minimum, we can just focus on the resources, having the resources to, um, you know, raise that child to reproductive age. So in our environment, it might be, it might not be necessary to have the actual man, <laughs> um, you know, just having the, the resources, you know, so. Uh, do you want to add anything, Todd? Or yeah, I mean, I was just thinking that. <clears throat> so we're talking about whether or not women. We'll, we'll just talk for the moment about women mm -hmm. who have children. Certainly, they're still interested in securing a partner. Right. Yeah. But then I was actually also thinking about another interesting set of questions: is whether or not their mate preferences, for example, mm -hmm. change once they do have children. Right. Uh, and I think you know we've collected some data. I don't know if we've actually published anything on this, but mm -hmm. we've certainly presented a couple of you know, talks at different conferences and we've talked about it, there is some evidence that mate preferences do change um, in predictable ways. Um, so for example, while, 
you know, women still certainly uh, report an interest in access to resources, good financial prospects in a prospective partner, and that's true uh, once they have children. But but what seems to be more important is his interest in parenting. I mean, some of these are not you know super difficult to understand. But the same woman, once she has children, now expresses a greater interest in not just a good parent, but emotional stability, dependability, the sorts of things that you might anticipate that women would prioritize if they did have children. Interest in home and children is another one. Uh, one other thing I'll mention is that they actually also report a significantly decreased interest in physical attractiveness of a long-term partner. So, so they're not as interested. Right after they have children and having right. a partner who's physically attractive. Who's physically attractive right. yeah. So it's like trade-offs within women's mate preferences. I mean, given that you can't have everything, I mean, very few people command the kind of mate value that they get everything they want. And so what you see is that once women have children, and we've looked at this with men um, to some extent, but much more focus on, on women, women trade off physical attractiveness for dependability and emotional stability, for example. Um, interest in uh, children and family life, um, which again, I don't think, you know, we're not claiming this is like rocket science, but it seems to be sort of playing out in the way that you might anticipate if there are these trade-offs. Mm -hmm. So let me just go back a little bit uh, because there's a very important point there. Um, I, I mean, when you were saying uh, a few minutes ago, Viviana, that uh, I guess uh, we have to take into account that it's not the case that a single woman can't raise uh, her children without any help. I guess that there are two things there to clarify, particularly because, unfortunately, evolutionary psychology is very easily associated with right-wing politics because people are talking about the biological basis for human behavior, and that's very unfortunate. So, uh, I mean, there, there's that right-wing argument that things like uh, child support by the state, it, it's undermining the nuclear family and things like that. But I guess that another thing that we have to take into account is that even during our evolutionary history, it's not the case that women depended exclusively or only on men to provide them with resources. We also have a lot of cooperative breathing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I would say that that might be just as important for a single mother raising a child to have that, you know, whether it's family or, um, you know, very close friends uh, to help raise that, that, that child. It's, it's a key element and, you know, healthy mind, you know, healthy raising uh, that child uh, to have um, sort of, you know, a support system. Um, yeah. Which may or may not include a long-term partner. Right. 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 I mean, in fact, there are also risks with, I mean, once a woman has had a child, if she's attempting, and it's true for men as well, but if she's attempting, but more so for women, if she's attempting to attract another mate, well, yes, he may provide resources, but he also may present a risk to her child, to her and her child, uh, in terms of physical abuse, neglect, and, and indeed, in some of our work, uh, filicide or killing of the child. Um, and we know that residence with a step-parent is the most, if not certainly one of the most, but you know, it's just a, um, 
an extraordinary risk factor for child abuse, uh, neglect, and murder. Um, and so there's also those trade-offs um, I mean, uh, to think about. So there are costs as well, the sorts of costs that you don't incur if you're relying on kin, mother, sister, nieces, uh, to help with raising. Um, they're terribly unlikely uh, to abuse, neglect, and murder your child. One, one interesting thing there to add is that uh, if there is a step-parent or step-father we're talking about specifically, uh, if he and the mother of that child share a child, then the risk of child abuse and just conflict in general in the household seems to diminish. So he has, so what I'm saying there is that there is, in terms of, you know, the abuse and conflict in the relationship, um, you know, having a child, sharing a child with those two um, kind of diminishes uh, some of that conflict and reduces the likelihood of child abuse and, and neglect towards that child because they share a common interest in that relationship. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is perhaps a very complicated question because it will involve several different factors, let's say. But, and I don't know if we already know anything about this or not, but since men have that issue with paternity uncertainty, do we know if men are more prone to be violent toward their children just because they are never 100% sure that they are their true parents, let's say. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, well, there's no doubt uh, that, I mean, well, there is one, uh, one age of child where women are far more likely to be murderous, and that is in the first 24 hours after birth. So what's referred to as neonaticide. I mean, the bottom line is if somebody's gonna kill the baby, it's gonna be the mother um, in that first 24 hours. Um, so women are in fact far more likely to commit filicide of an infant. That is of an infant within the first 24 hours of life. I mean, part of it is just statistically speaking, you know, she's gonna be there, she's birthing the baby. Um, but beyond that, there's no doubt that men are uh, more like men are more violent generally um, in virtually every context, um, and so it is also the case that men are more violent, abusive, neglectful towards children, towards their own children. Um, although I'm not sure if that's true once you control for the statistical likelihood or the the availability of engaging in any interaction. I mean, women spend far more time with their children than do men on average, and so. I mean, if you control for the amount of time spent together, um, I guess that would actually work against what I was just saying. So the bottom line is, yes, men are more violent. And in fact, in fact, they may look even more so once you control for the fact that they spend significantly less time with their children. Um, if you just look at frequencies, this is what I wanted to say. Yeah. If you just look at frequencies of violent occurrences, uh, it might be that women engage in more frequent neglect, abuse, um, I don't know about filicide. I think it's yeah. I think for filicide, I think if you just look at frequencies, it's not that different for right. males and females, so mothers and fathers. Um, but that's a, that's looking at data points that are obtained from you know police department um, police department. So they're not taking into account things like right. how much time is spent together. So I think right. that's a critical thing to keep in mind when you're um, you know interpreting those results. Right. Well, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. well, I was just going to say, with filicide, though, what's different about filicide is that it can only happen once. 
-hmm. I mean, there's a frequency of one. I mean, the kids kill us within a particular woman, but then within men and women, of course, men can be abusive, neglectful right. multiple times, as can women. And I think the frequencies might not be that different, as yeah. Rihanna is suggesting. Yeah. But when you control for opportunity, uh, I think that men are far more likely to be neglectful and abusive. I mean, they spend so much less time on average with children. And so if the frequencies are about the same, well, then that suggests that the rates are much higher for men. Right. given the less frequent interaction. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, but uh, I mean, all of these kinds of neglect and violence that we're talking about here, uh, I mean, they represent a very little percentage Absolutely. of occurrences, right? I mean, it's not the case that this, that this is in any way widespread, either for mothers and for fathers to neglect or to be violent in, in a relevant or a significant way toward their children, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's fair to say. Although, you know, there's a lot of, you know, discussion right now on, you know, what counts as abusive. You know, I mean, we've been thinking a lot in different work on, you know, what's something like spanking, for example. I mean, that's illegal in some states. Um, whereas... You know, and it's still practiced. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I guess there you're getting into the definitions. But the bottom line is, in terms of, you know, highly damaging physical abuse, for example. Yes, I mean, I think on average, parents are not, you know, frequently abusing their children. Um, I mean, it's relatively infrequent. Um, but again, relatively speaking, it's much more frequent with parents of stepchildren. Um, and it's relatively more frequent with men than it is with women, I guess, in terms of uh, frequency as a function of opportunity. Um, but getting back to your original question, so, I mean, well, so there's two alternatives. Well, one alternative is that men are just more violent. That's why they're more likely to be, you know, abusive. Another possibility is that uh, their violence is sort of an expression of their, you know, the fact of paternal uncertainty. Um, I think the work that speaks best to that is the kind of work uh, that Gordon Gallup and others have done, which shows that men who perceive that the child looks less like them are, in fact, more likely to be abusive and neglectful toward that child. Um, and you don't see that kind of variation in women's neglect, abuse, um, and for that matter, murder. So something in male psychology seems to be sensitive to sort of a downstream proxy of likelihood of relatedness. I mean, men don't typically say, I don't think the kid is mine. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary if that's, you know, they don't usually say that. It's not part of the conscious sort of articulation of the evolved psychology. But the data indicate that men are more likely to be abusive towards those children that they perceive look less like them, have different personality characteristics from them. And the most important point of this is that you do not see that kind of variation in women's behavior towards their children. Women don't report being more abusive towards kids that look less like them. Women's abuse doesn't vary as a function of perceived, we can think of it as perceived maternity. There's no variation there. Yeah. Yes, and that's very... Yeah. Yes, and that's very interesting. And let me just ask you, couldn't it be another source of evidence for us to use here to understand if really paternity uncertainty is what's behind or a major factor behind uh, paternal uh, neglect or violence, let's say, 
to study how uh, paternal and maternal grandparents deal with their grandchildren because there could be some difference there right because since the maternal grandparents would be in principle more certain that those are really their grandchildren then it might uh, that might manifest in terms of uh, being more or less uh, neglecting or more or less violent toward them or investing more or less in them, right? Yeah, so, I mean, we did some work on this a few years ago on grand parental investments. And uh, this is work with a former student, uh, Rick Mahalski. I can't remember if you were on that. Yeah. yeah. At any rate, um, that's exactly uh, what we found. Uh, we found we, this was a study of grandparents and asking them, about their investment in their grandchildren and what we predicted and what we found now we weren't the first to reach this prediction we were testing we were attempting to replicate some previous work where they had asked grandchildren about differential investment of different grandparents well we we had the opportunity to ask grandparents how they invested you know you gotta be real careful because grandparents are very funny about sort of admitting to differential attention um, bottom line uh, fathers fathers that is the paternal grandfather mm -hmm. was the least investing. The maternal grandmother was the most investing. Um, so the lingo in the field is mo mo, mother's mother, and, <laughs> and fa fa, father's father. Just exactly as you would expect, because mother's mother is definitely the maternal grandmother. There's no links of uncertainty there. Okay? And grandparents are reporting that they favor. We had to be again. We had to be careful in how we asked this, but they were investing more in uh, grand. Sorry, grand mother's mother was investing the most by her own reports, mm -hmm. which now which replicated grandchildren's reports. Grandchildren were saying mother's mother invests the most, spends the most time with me, buys me the best gifts, uh, you know, uh, tells me she loves me. Father's father invested the least. And this is by grandfather's own reports. Father's father invested the least which replicates grandchildren's reports of their grandparents' investment. So yes, and the argument there is that, I mean, there may be alternative explanations, but we haven't thought of one better than the likelihood of relational uncertainty. That's what we called it. So with mother's mother, you have zero links of relational uncertainty. With father's father, you have two. Where things get interesting is in between there with mother's father and father's mother. And some people argued, well, you're just finding a super male effect or a super female effect with mother's mother because mothers socioculturally are expected to invest more, fathers expected to invest less. Maybe there's nothing evolutionary about it. I mean, it's a silly way to frame it, but you get what I'm saying. And so we said, well, let's look at what's happening in between there in the father's mother and mother's father. If the sociocultural explanation was right, you would expect uh, father's mother to invest more than mother's father. That's not what we found. We found that uh, mother's father was investing more. And uh, now there's some speculative um, sort of, um, not that's not the right word. There's a little bit of work suggesting that the rates of infidelity correspond to those findings. In other words, that uh, mother's father, uh, the link, the infidelity link was um, less tenuous. Sorry, the link, the relational link was less tenuous in that uh, generation than it was in father's mother's generation. All of which is to say there's a lot more interesting work to do. But some of the initial work suggests that, yes, paternal certainty or uncertainty, as it were, can impact not just parental child relationships, but grandparental relationships. 
did, did you guys control for time, uh, distance? Yes, yeah. and we controlled for distance. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we controlled for the grandparents' income. We controlled for distance, uh, residential distance from the child. Um, and so it wasn't just that it was easier for mother's mother to invest uh, than it was for father's father. So we did all those sorts of controls as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, let's now talk specifically about the sorts of activities that having children might affect after the fact, of course. So, I mean, is it the case that after people uh, add children, they move on to a mode, let's say, where they are tweaked toward investing more of their time and resources in raising the child then uh, investing the same sorts of things in their mate and their um, romantic relationship yeah oh certainly um i mean that's a huge you know source of conflict so one of the things that comes to mind in you asking the question that question is uh frequency of sex you know, after having children, right? So, um, I mean, this is uh, a very, I think, sensitive area. I was just reading an article a little bit earlier. It's not not a scientific one. <laughs> um, um, back in, I think it was April or so. And so they were looking at, you know, sex after five years of marriage, 10 years, 20 years. And um, I mean, based on, you know, some of, you know, previous research, and I think you've got some married data couples, married married couples data on this but um it seems to be all over the place in terms of frequency of sex and um it's certainly um you know an area that i think um i i would say that there's a lot of you know individual variation or you know within couples um i mean one of the things that come to mind, uh, you know, when thinking about the, you know, source of conflict, I can't help but think about the maternity certainty and, you know, parental, uh, paternal uncertainty uh, that, you know, women are, you know, certain of their children. So they're, you know, the the, the trade-off, it seems like it would be less of a trade-off, right? It's sort of, okay, well, I must invest in, in my children. Um, Whereas with males, it becomes it's a little more of a conflict in in their in their in their you know psychology. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's any work on that, but yeah. that's a wonderful hypothesis. Right. I mean, you know, uh, I think there certainly is anecdotal evidence that you know men appreciate that conflict. Well, that men, yeah, that the conflict is more you know sort of intense, intense yeah. for men than it is for women. Um, and the, the internal, yeah dialogue you know so i can imagine that men can appreciate that though they know that mothers the mother is the mother of their child so they have to and they also want uh you know their mother uh, they're not their mother but the child's mother to invest in the child right so this yeah this internal dialogue um my guess is it's louder for males than it is for females um a bottom line is that there's just not enough sex happening for males, right? You know, once they once they have children. Well, I mean, that's generally true, right? I mean, sexual frequency is, you know, by in many data sets, the single most important conflict, as reported by both men and women. I mean, for different reasons, women will report that he wants to have sex too much, and men will report she doesn't want to have sex enough, and that so that's, that conflict is there even in couples who don't have children. I think the conflict. I mean, in some sense, 
what we know, once you control for age, I mean, sexual frequency does decrease with age. Um, I'm stumbling because there's just no good empirical work on issues of conflict surrounding sexual frequency that takes into account the presence of children. Um, I think it's just something that hasn't been investigated. I mean, the you know the general you know there's no doubt that the data indicates, as Viviana mentioned, that sexual frequency decreases, okay, with age. But even if you control for age, sexual frequency decreases with children. Um, yeah, and I think the key determinant of the intensity of conflict or a key determinant must be some kind of proxy of paternal certainty. Um, my guess is that the conflict will become more intense for men who have suspicions of paternity, not not consciously articulated, whereas the conflict actually might become less or remain right where it was for men who are not, uh, who don't have suspicions of paternal uncertainty. Um, all of which is to say there's virtually nothing on this in the empirical literature. Um, I think part of the problem, and this is what we kept running into, is that, I mean, weirdly, there's very little work on how having children affects male and female psychology. I mean, there just there really is very little work. Um, I mean, we're culpable as well for having done decades of work on, you know, undergraduate psychology students you know, who haven't had kids and we're interested in mate preferences and sexual preferences and sexual interests. But then what we sort of keep bumping into is that, you know, there's virtually no work on psychology post children or once children enter the picture. Um, and I think it's a really interesting, I say weird because you'd think that evolutionary psychologists would be all over this uh, because I mean, having kids, that's a, you know, a major adaptive sort of uh, problem and a major sort of um, feature of our evolutionary history, an important feature. And yet, there's remarkably little work on psychological changes um, as a function of having kids. Well, I think, so a lot of the research, there is research on remating, remarriage, True. Yeah. right? But that's outside of evolutionary psychology. So there is a lot of that, but their their focus is not on uh, sort of, uh, you know, the effects of children on parents' mating psychology. What what the focus primarily is, is that, um, you know, looking at sexual attitudes towards dating, negative outcomes for children if, you know, parents remarry, negative, out, you know, like adolescent behavior, you know, um, you know, maladaptive behaviors, this is, you know, their words, maladaptive behaviors in, in adolescents and children after, you know, parents remarry. So the emphasis is really on, you know, children's outcomes and sort of the, um, you know, that a negative, I, I think, just pushing a negative connotation for dating after, you know, having children because of look at all of the negative outcomes that are possible. And so, yeah, so, um, yeah, there's very little work looking at the effects of children on parental, you know, parents mating psychology and, you know, in a healthy way because it's not, it's not, it can't be horrible, not if we think about it evolutionarily, right? So. So yes. what, what you're saying is that the work that we have in psychology, I'm not sure about the branches of psychology that uh, do that kind of work, but um, I mean that we know uh, a little bit about 
how um, children get affected, let's say, but we don't, uh, because people haven't approached those kinds of questions with an evolutionary perspective or with an evolutionary framework, then we are lacking the biological, maybe not biological, but the evolutionary basis to how people get affected by having children in terms of their mating behavior, their sexual activity, and also their parental investment. Yeah, I think one of the costs, and you know, I'm an advocate of you know good scientific work, and I appreciate you know, we wouldn't be talking about other research if, you know, that research wasn't there. So I get how science works and, and so forth. But the reality, I think, is that, um, you know, so one of the costs of, you know, thinking about the previous research on, you know, negative outcomes is, you know, you know, pushing this idea of, you know, environmental influences. Look at, you know, look at the parent's behavior. It's causing the child to, you know, engage in, you know, deviant sexual behaviors, which, you know, we might consider normal sexual activity in an adolescent or, you know, older teenager, um, without taking into account or at least acknowledging that there might be, the product might be because of, you know, genetic relationship between the children, right? So the heritable components of, you know, sexual promiscuity might, we might see the same sorts of behaviors in those children. So, you know, so it's like this, um, it's not a real effect or we shouldn't attribute, you know, parents' behaviors, you know, that that as a direct link to, um, you know, the, the child's behaviors or attitudes. Well, yeah. I mean, in fact, the, the work that has been done suggests that parents have remarkably little effect parental behavior and parental interactions have very little effect so so far very little direct effect it's the shared genetic effect it's the shared genes that seem to account for correlations between uh, parents and children now, I know you've spoken with I think you spoke with uh, one of the students in our lab Nicole Barbero mm -hmm. um, who's done some really neat work in that area and others um, yeah so right I mean but I think Viviana's point is an excellent one which is that you get a very skewed sort of sense of what happens in relationships after having children. I mean, because so much of the focus is on how kids get screwed up, basically. Um, and there's so much more going on uh, than just that. But it did remind me that there is this literature in sociology. I don't know how active it is now, but certainly it was a decade ago on the transition to parenthood, mm -hmm. which looked at but it, it wasn't informed, for the most part, it wasn't informed by an evolutionary perspective. And basically it looked at changes in the satisfaction in the relationship as a function of having children. And what they found, you know, this is sort of a you know, replicable finding across different data sets, but it's not very informative. They found, well, about a third of couples, the relationship worsens after children. About a third of couples, the relationship gets better after having children. About a third of couples, basically nothing changes. And, you know, that's that's just grist for the evolutionary psychological mill now. The question is, why? Why do things get better for some, worse for others, and stay the same? It's just in this one domain of marital satisfaction or satisfaction in a relationship. And it's, I think it's a good way of appreciating that taking an evolutionary perspective can help to focus your questions. I mean, I would want to ask, and I did as I read this literature, is, well, are there any proxies for paternal certainty or assessments of, of how 
you know, likely he thinks he is the father. My guess is that probably is going to have an impact on how the relationship goes after that. But they don't ask those kinds of questions. So it's a really, really neat and wide open area of work. Well, and I think the flip side of that, too, would be, you know, how much support do those women have? Oh, yeah. You know, kin, you know, close by uh, where she, you know, could, um, you know, share some of the, the, you know, child responsibilities so that she could be available to work on the relationship, you know, a little more. So, yeah. So uh, it could be the case that there's an element of individual difference in the way different couples experience uh, having children and what happens after that, right? Because, and that probably would invoke uh, doing some work uh, in behavioral genetics, for example. Uh, you were referring to the fact that, that we know that parents don't really affect children's development that much and that has to do with that literature that studies the percentage of heritability and the shared and the non-shared environment on each psychological trait right and uh, i mean i was just wondering uh, if maybe there could be it could be the case that those differences that people find uh, among couples when they're studying them, uh, if they could derive simply from some sort of individual differences for, for the men or for the women, I don't, and then the sort of relationship dynamics that they establish on the basis of those same individual differences. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think... Um I mean, I don't mean to, you know, to speak poorly of that transition to parenthood literature. I, think, I mean, it's a fascinating literature, mm -hmm. but it identifies these, you know, these broad swaths of couples, some of whom do better, some worse, and some about the same. But that, to me, just sets the stage for the interesting kinds of questions that, you know, I would want to ask. Yeah, including, well, you know, what, you know, were there reports of infidelity on one or both partners? Um, particularly relevant might be... Uh, uh, the the man's suspicions of his partner's infidelities. Um, certainly, it would be relevant the extent to which you know they have uh, particularly maternal support. Um, so, mother's genetic relatives in particular around to help with the child. I mean, my guess is that will tamp down some of the conflict that may have emerged as a function of you know perceptions of uh, likely paternal uncertainty. In other words, I mean, those are just two things just off the top of my head and that we've been talking about that I think would be really interesting and it would help us get a little farther in the work on the so-called transition to parenthood. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if there's any work on this topic and I guess it would be very interesting to explore, uh, to explore it as well, but I mean, wouldn't it be interesting to try to uh, follow uh, couples over time and, uh, and see if there are fluctuations at the level of their sexual activity? Because uh, let me just put this hypothesis forward. Uh, wouldn't it make sense, even from an evolutionary perspective, that, okay, so this couple had a child and now they are investing in it, and then, okay, after the child reaches a certain age where she is already 
already somewhat independent, let's say, that, that range that I guess Alan Fisher talks about, about the seven years range, right, where people uh, usually in, in traditional societies and also in modern societies usually break up and go looking for another partner and things like that. And then when the child had reached that age where she is a little bit independent, let's say at least enough for 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 them to survive well enough on somewhat on their own, let's say that the their sexual activity either within the couple or with uh, people outside of their established romantic relationship would increase because it would make more sense for them to try to have a second and a third child for, uh, to increase, of course, their fitness. Yes, I mean, that all seems, you know, those are all reasonable hypotheses. And I think that's what you would anticipate. Um, and in fact, there is a little bit of work. Um, Robin Baker and Mark Bellis published some, some survey research um, it suggested the possibility that where there was a paternal discrepancy, so in other words, where cuckoldry actually did occur, it was most likely to occur for the second child. Um, again, there's lots we can nitpick about this kind of work, but it's an interesting idea. The argument here is that, um, let me just say it crassly, and, and you know, the idea is that uh, a woman uh, might sort of lure a man in, have his child, right, and sort of get him sort of locked down in the relationship. And then again, by women's own reports, they're more likely to be unfaithful and to produce a child by a different father with the second child. Um, now, I don't for a moment think that women plan this out, but I think the evolved machinery works in such a way as to, from the maternal side, you know, ensure that your child has investment uh, from the current father um, and sort of lock down that first child. Uh, and then if infidelities, you know, are on the horizon to pursue those, you know, subsequent to that first child. And at any rate, that's what the data seem to suggest, yeah, at least um, what data we do have. Um, so yes, I mean, we'd also have to control for, of course, uh, you know, control for age. I mean, sexual interest for both men and women generally does decrease with age as a function of, you know, the um, endocrinological, you know, sort of uh, status of the individual and, and other issues. I mean, life gets more complicated as you age, but even so, um, I think your hypothesis remains a very interesting one. Even controlling for age, do you find that couples' sexual frequency increases once the child reaches, you know, sort of a relatively independent age? Um, I would not be shocked if that were the case. But again, it's, I don't know of any work that's explicitly investigated yeah. that, and it's not super complicated. Um, so that's exactly the kind of work that we think would be really interesting uh, to pursue. Mm -hmm. And do you know if, if for single parents, for single mothers and single fathers, if there are any sex differences in terms of how having children might impact their mate value in the mating market? Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. Um, so, I guess this is going back to something that I talked about a little bit earlier, that a lot of the, you know, I would say just traditional or initial, um, you know, research by evolutionary psychologists did, you know, focus on, I mean, but the fact is that female, you know, mate value goes down, right, after having children. Um, and, and that's generally speaking, right? So, 
um, one of the interesting things, I just, sorry, just had a thought come into my, um, one of the things that, uh, it's not published research, but we did find, let me see if I can think about this, say this correctly, that, um, you know, the research where we looked, where we asked men if they were interested in, um, we, we had a, interested in having a relationship with a woman or, you know, with children, right? What am I thinking here? You know, the one, yeah, yeah, I know what she's talking about. Yeah, this is work that we've do we uh, well, at any rate, it's not published. yeah, it's not published. But we asked, I'm gonna just get right to it. Bottom line, men's interest in short term sex with a woman doesn't vary with whether she has oh, kids yeah. or not. Yeah, that's what it was. Okay, she has a kid, whatever, doesn't have a kid, whatever. So that's kind of interesting because what we've heard in our in research, you know, right, uh, you know, throughout the years, is that her mate value decreases. That's the emphasis, right? You know, so that's our take-home message. Mate, it's baggage. You know, why would a man want, you know, a relationship with a woman? But so we took it like a step farther and you know, kind of distinguished between short-term and right. long-term relationship, and you know. It's, these were the same men, right? Yeah, same yeah. men. And we asked them, you know, about, uh, you know, whether they want to have a short-term or long-term relationship. And yeah, and it didn't matter if she had a child. So right. it's kind of interesting. Not that it's, you know, groundbreaking or anything like that, but it's kind of, again speaks to this, um, you know, um, male psychology that's sort of rigid in one regard, right? That he's interested in having sex. But um, in terms of having a long-term relationship with a woman with the children, you know, they, they rated that as less interesting to them. Right. It was, right. They still would have sex with her. Okay? Yeah. And they'd right. still consider but a relationship. But yeah. yeah, I mean, she's less attractive now as a, as a sexual partner and as a partner generally, if she has children from a previous partner. But would he have sex with her? Yes. Sure. Doesn't affect his interest. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I guess that if men don't have to obligatorily yeah. invest in yeah. a child, then they just want to have sex. Right, right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of work on, you know, men's, you know, sort of very, very loose standards if you're talking about short-term sex. Right. Right. They become much less, you know, the I, some of this work by Doug Kenrick and others, you know, that... You know, she has to be at least at the, if she's a long-term partner, she's got to be at least at the 70th percentile to be a long-term partner. But, you know, short-term partner, got to be at least at the 40th percentile. You know, so they become much less demanding. So, so what we're saying, though, is this is men's interest in having sex, right? So the question then could be, okay, well, with a woman with this child, I th we, we varied the age of the child. So it's right. a woman with a two-year-old, a woman with a seven-year-old, and a woman with a you know 13-year-old. It didn't matter how, what age the child was. You know, men were interested in having sex. Um, or the sex of the child. Or the sex of the child. But, um, you know, a separate question is, you know, would this woman have sex who has, you know, a child that's two years old, three or, you know, uh, so that's the other side of it. So men can have all the interests they want, but then, you know, the question is, will the woman have sex with them? And we know that, well, I mean, there were other variables that we'd have to include there, like how much time would pass before she would have sex with them and so forth. Right, right. You know, this is just anecdotal evidence, but there's a somewhat interesting uh, program going on on uh, Portuguese television that is uh, 
based on blind dating, you know, they, they simply pair up different people that participate on the show and they don't know one another, it's just a blind date and it's very interesting just to notice some patterns there because uh, it's very rarely that a woman says yes to having right. a second date, but the, <laughs> the, the men, almost all of them say yes right away. But right. Ju just yesterday I was watching it and it was very interesting because there was one woman there who had already five children and then uh, what happened was that uh, the man that uh, blind dated with her, let's put it that way, uh, re rejected having a second date. And, and I just thought, okay, this has to do with her having children already because all the other guys were just saying yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, as Viviana mentioned, you know, there, there's very good evidence that, yeah, women's mate value, in fact, so does men's mate value, decreases yeah. uh, as they have children. Um, yeah. I mean, because it is just sort of loosely, it's baggage for men as it is for women bringing into another relationship. But it's more sort of, uh, it's a heavier baggage for women than it is for men. I think in part because, of course, women do uh, the vast majority of the childcare and it post-relationship, children are far more likely to reside with the mother than with the father. Um, and so, uh, but it is the case that both uh, men and women, you know, sort of generally speaking, experience a decrease in mate value um, with having children. And I think that's, and I think they're also, you know, I mean, they're sensitive to that as well. I think both men and women are sensitive to, you know, to the fact that children change what they bring to the table, as it were. Um, and I think they, they adjust, well, this is the argument, is that they adjust their preferences accordingly. And they don't just decrease all their preferences. It's not like women that have children are just saying, I'll just take anything. As a matter of fact, they increase the importance that they place on dependable character, emotional stability, almost as if they want to thwart, you know, selection of a partner that's going to do bad things to their kids. Um, so... You know, again, I think it's not just a general sort of decrease in preferences. They're, they're shifting preferences. Some increase and some decrease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th that's interesting. And I was just wondering, you said that it also affects negatively uh, single father's mate value. But I, I was just wondering if single fathers, uh, I mean fathers with children, if they couldn't have some sort of appeal to women in the sense that if women are looking for a long-term uh, partnership, let's say, they want a man that uh, can prove that he is able and wanting to invest long-term uh, in a child. And so if they notice that there's a single father that obviously is doing and is willing to do all the work, couldn't that at least have some appeal to women because they would have direct evidence that that man over there invests really heavily in children? 
I would say absolutely. That's absolutely a plus uh, for, I mean, if you think about it from a you know, female's perspective, and it's consistent with some of the initial research that we've done looking at mate preferences, that that characteristic, you know, uh, interest in having a child or emotional stability, all of those things speak to having healthy relationships, right? And if he has a child, um, and he's exhibiting those kinds of behaviors towards that child. Yes, it's direct evidence for the woman who has children uh, that this might be, um, you know, um, you know, a person with a similar mate value, right, or someone that they that they can work with. So another thing that I think comes into this is you know mate value discrepancy. So where you have you know, um, a, a big difference, like, you know, she's a, a three and he's a, a nine or vice versa, then, you know, that also plays a role, I would say, in, you know, if, if a woman has a child in terms of, you know, sexual frequency in that relationship, probably sexual frequency does not go down or the conflict is much more intense, you know, if she has a child from a previous marriage and the, let's say the guy is a lot older than her, right, because she's younger, she, you know, that increases chances of infidelity um, and, or, you know, her attractiveness is, you know, very high. So I, I imagine that the conflict and, you know, um, it's going to be a, a lot more intense in that sort of relationship. So where there's an age difference, where the guy is older, uh, where there is a mate value discrepancy, I would say that would also, you know, um, you know play a role in, in the level of conflict in the relationship especially right. where there's a child from a previous relationship involved. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So so let me ask you if parent offspring conflict might also play a role in these sorts of dynamics. I mean, I've had Dr. Rivers on the show and I've asked him this directly, but so he's basically the master of parent offspring conflict. But do you know if it would make sense that since parents are investing in a child, that it would be in the interest of that child to, to prevent their parents from having more children because then they would have to, to divide, let's say, their resources and, their, and other sorts of things that they invest in their children. Well, I mean, that strikes me as, you know, I don't I don't know about that because I mean it's a double-edged sword I mean yes an additional sibling will cause some diversion of resources it might well depend on what resources are available I mean if you've got lots of resources well then investing some of them into an additional child yes that's a that's a cost that has to be incurred by the child that already exists but the benefit of course is that you now have a full sibling um, that share in principle shares half your genes or at least a quarter of them, even if she was, even if the mother had a child by a different father. So I'm not sure you would always anticipate uh, that children would never want to have a sibling or would always want to thwart parental attempts at copulation that might produce a sibling, uh, another sibling. There may well be um, some interesting, uh, you know, breakpoints, you know, where, okay, once resources reach a particular threshold, well then, you know, kids might be, uh, less upset by the introduction of a new sibling, um, given that siphoning of resources to that new sibling wouldn't be as devastating. Um, so anyways, the point is, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that would be a, a whole, that would be another very interesting area to investigate. Uh, parental interference with, sorry, children's interference with parental sexuality. Um, 
Uh, and I guess that that would also be very interesting to explore because, I mean, it, it would uh, uh, enter into conflict, I guess, with the fact that it seems that people that are lower in terms of uh, socioeconomic status, uh, the, the, they usually have more children. So, sure. I, I mean, if it was the case, I guess, this is just an hypothesis, that children would have some mechanisms that they were to use to try to interfere with, for example, their parents' sexual activity and trying to prevent them from having more children, then that would be that would make even more sense in a context where they would be more limited in terms of resources. And so it would make more sense for that sort of thing to manifest in those contexts, I, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I could, I could see it going either way because, you know, one strategy is to have less, right? Uh, but it might be, uh, and it, I guess it would depend on how, how much resources are available because I could also see the strategy that, well, have, have a child with this man, that'll, maybe this will be the man that's going to invest in us, you yeah. know, and so I could see it going either way. Uh, I can see an argument for both, you know, both strategies. Um, better something than nothing. If we don't try, we'd have nothing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Yeah. I mean, you... Uh, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, not just the issue of resources available, but I wonder whether children from a previous mateship might be more likely to interfere with a parent's mating strategy. Because um, there, you're going to share, you're going to share genes, but only through the mother. Um, you know, I don't know. I have to think about this. Um, uh, yeah, I guess might. I guess that another element that could be uh, added here is the fact that uh, I mean I've already talked with some uh, anthropologists and uh, it seems that at least in more traditional societies and I'm talking about primarily hunter gatherers that mm -hmm. people also uh, take their children as economic assets in the sense yeah. that uh, after they w they reach a certain age they can be put to work and to producing more resources that doesn't happen in our modern societies also because we have laws set in place against that but i mean that could be another thing or another uh, factor let's say that could play a role in um, children not interfering with their parents having more siblings, let's say, because they would also be helping them in a sense. Right. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, yeah, that's a, a yeah a different way of thinking about it. Uh, the one thing that I just thought about too, uh, an interesting, you know, conflict, uh, you know, where a woman has a child from a previous marriage is the relationship um, between her and her new partner <clears throat> and that child. So, you know, the things that, so it's parent offspring conflict, but only in the interest of maintaining her, the romantic partner. So you need to behave well, you know, do exactly what he says. So it's, you know, maintaining resources, but also, um, you know, sort of protecting her, you know, the child too, from any sort of abuse or, um, you know, maltreatment by by the new partner. Um, 
so in some ways it's sort of acknowledging that um, you know uh, that there's a cost to having a child but there might be more of um, you know a um, that the the outcome might be more beneficial or more beneficial if she you know maintains this relationship with uh, this new partner yeah Okay, so let me ask you this now, because at least in our modern industrialized societies, I guess that in most of them, at least the ones that I know about, when there's a conflict or parents go through divorce, I mean, most of the time the custody of the children is given to the mother. And I mean, that has, I guess, a very good evolutionary basis to it, because as we talked about here, mothers tend to invest more in their children and tend to be less neglecting, let's say. But could it also be the case that the paternity uncertainty heuristic, let's say, could also operate at the level of the children's minds in the sense that maybe that would lead them to also establish a better relationship with their mother than with their parent, with their father, because they would also take I mean, this is a bit weird to think about, but that they in some sense would also uh, somewhat know that it's, uh, uh, there's a higher probability that they are uh, uh, the true children of their mother, and when it comes to the father, I mean, it's less probable. Absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, you would, I would anticipate that, well, You'd have to get kind of clever how you investigate this. But yes, I would think that it's it's a two-way street. So mothers are investing more and are more reliable investors in their children. Um, but I think it's also the case, as you're suggesting, that children children's minds may be built to sort of anticipate greater likelihood of investment from a parent with whom you share. You certainly share genes. You may or may not share genes with a father with the social father. And so I could imagine that children generally will report and, you know, would report greater comfort, you know, uh, better relationship overall um, and greater trust with mothers than with fathers. Um, and so what would be interesting is to try to peel apart, you know, is it, is this an effect of mothers or what, what, what is the effect of mothers? What is the effect, you know, as distinct from the effect of children's psychology. Um, there may be two different effects going on there, which kind of feed into each other. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so let me just ask you one last question, and we've already talked about parent-offspring conflict, and we speculated a little bit here, and I guess that this can get uh, very psychoanalytical very quickly, but uh, I mean, uh, do, do you know if there's any literature on uh, how people might get, might be affected by, um, um, by witnessing their parents having sex? I, I, I mean, because I, I was just thinking 
from an anthropological perspective, let's say, and uh, thinking about how we evolved in hunter-gatherer societies. I mean, I'm not sure if people, when they want to have sex, if they move into a place that they try to be a little bit more private or not, but since we know from behavioral genetics that basically most of what parents do uh, doesn't have at least an overlasting effect on their children's development. I mean, there are people, as I, as I was alluding to the psycho, uh, uh, psychoanalysts that, I, I mean, sometimes bring up these ideas that uh, children witnessing this and that, in this case particularly parents copulating, could have some sort of negative effect in their I lives, think. but, but uh, do you know, particularly from an evolutionary perspective, if that would make any sense? Uh, you wanna? No. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, kids don't go blind, for example, you know. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't know of any good work on that. I mean, my general sense is most people are disgusted by the thought of their parents having sex. Mm -hmm. um, but that may be sort of confounded with, you know, you know, uh, I don't know that it's your parents having sex so much as just thinking about one or the other of your parent in a sexual kind of context is, is disgusting, um, just as it is imagining having sex with a sibling. Um, and so I'm not sure that we need to dig any further than you know, people projecting themselves into a sexual situa situation that involves their genetic relatives. I think it's it's such a powerful anti-aphrodisiac, you know, disgust eliciter that I don't think we necessarily have to go to, I mean, what you want to do is you want to look at how unsettling or disgusting is it to find your father having sex with your mother versus find your father having sex with his lover. I mean, my guess is having sex with his lover is going to be significantly less disgusting, but probably still disgusting. Um, but anyways, the point is, you know, I don't know of any, I, I don't know of any, I don't know if you do, but I don't know of any good empirical work on this, um, other than the anecdotal stuff of, yeah, I still remember when I was three, you know, and <laughs> I saw this, or, you know, but, you know, that's kind of uh, muddled up with sort of the cultural sort of psychoanalytic, you know, stuff we all drag around. I mean, I just don't know, it would be kind of interesting. Uh, I suppose. I, I just don't know how to get at it. I'd have to really think about how to get at that. Um, I mean, because if you think about it, I mean, most sex does not produce children. I mean, right. one, you know, the rate of conception per copulation for consensual sex is about 3%. So about three in a hundred copulations will result in a conception. But from the child's perspective, I'm not saying you want to witness it, but you would want your parents to be maintaining sexual uh, activity um, because the absence of sexual activity is a wonderful predictor for divorce and disillusion. Um, so you've got all kinds of, you know, powerful, you know, sort of forces pushing and pulling. Um, and I, you know. I, I, sorry, I'm speaking again. I have no, I have no knowledge of any research on this, especially from an evolutionary perspective, but when you were bringing up the incest idea, um, it made me think about, you know, the the secrecy that parents engage in. So you know, yeah. so as not to 
traumatize the children, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it's almost like, um, you know, like we would protect our children from getting hit by a car, right? Or, you know, experiencing upsetting things. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's why I, you know, I think, yeah, anecdotally parents, you know, do it in secrecy or they wait till the children go to sleep or they do it in another bedroom or another room. Um, they go out of their way to, you know, protect their children. Not <laughs> as if they think there's a bad effect. Right. And it might be because like you're saying, if it is, if it has something to do with, you know, incest avoidance and, you know, you know, perceiving yourself involved in sexual activity with your mother or father, then that's, I think, in a healthy mind, it's not, it's disgusting, right? So you're sort of protecting the child from experiencing that, just like you wouldn't right. want them to ingest, you know, ammonia or something like that. Um, but you wouldn't, but, but, yeah. but I think also that healthy romantic behavior, yeah, is also a good indicator to the child that, everything is good here. You know, you're, you're good, you're taken care of. Uh, so that's also important to communicate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's, it certainly is interesting. And I guess that, uh, okay, we are speculating a yeah. little bit here in this episode and th there's no problem about that because we're saying yeah. that these are just hypotheses to put on the table. But I guess that I just decided to ask you about yeah. that because I, uh, it could be the case that there could be some sort of literature out there that I didn't know about. And I mean, people keep putting or coming up with these uh, with these hypotheses or these wild ideas about how children might be affected by their parents in a thousand different ways, including how children might be affected just by looking at their parents or even other people's naked bodies. <laughs> I mean, we right. get into places where it starts making no sense at all because, I mean, we evolved naked, right? And so, right. Uh, I mean, we've we've we had uh, we've been having uh, clothes in our societies and even undergatherer ones for a very long time but uh, i mean for all intents and purposes people have been living in co in close quarters with one another and seeing themselves and other people mostly naked so i mean yeah. I, I i won't imagine any way that would affect children negatively so no no, I mean, I would predict that seeing a parent having sex will have, my prediction is that it will have absolutely no long-term consequences. Well, yeah, I would say yes, if you were just talking about, I think, you know, healthy sex. I mean, if, yeah. yeah I don't know. I mean, well, at any rate, yeah, I mean, even terrible things that happen in life, you know, I guess it depends, but there's no guarantee that, you know, that there's going to be some kind of negative outcomes. Um, yeah, okay. and, and it also it also depends a lot on people's personality because I mean even even very bad events in life I mean they affect people differently. There are people that are more uh, that react more negatively to those sorts of things and even develop depression and anxiety and things like that. And there are other people that uh, simply take that as bumps on the road or something like that. Yeah. I think the other thing to keep in mind too is the age of the child, because a very young child is not going to know what to make of, you know, 
sex. Um, Parents can still say they're just wrestling. They're wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, right, of course. Yeah, so, so, you know, and then I, th and so the, the issue then of, you know, having that privacy, I think the kids, you know, as they get older, they, they know what's happening, right? So they're not going to want to be there or go out of their way to try to come into the bedroom or, <laughs> right. you know, right. they get it. But uh, as a child, I think you're right, you know, that it probably, so developmentally, you know, what, what, what do they do with this information or what they're visualizing, um, I guess is, yeah, not, not much as a child. Yeah, I mean, I guess that at the level of <laughs> they're saying that they were wrestling or something like that. <laughs> I guess that they could say that they were going through just a schedule of rough and tumble play to prepare for hunting or <laughs> something like right. that. Yeah, and if you say wrestling, that sounds better than, you know, mommy was being a bad girl, you know, type of thing. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right, right. Okay, so guys, it was really nice to have this conversation with you. Uh, just before we go, I mean, would you like to tell people again what are the best places on the internet for them to find your work? Sure, uh, but before we do that, we just thought uh, your viewers might appreciate knowing, well, we'd like to tell them that we are co-hosting the next uh, Human Behavior and Evolution Society meeting. Uh, in 2020, it'll be in June of 2020, June 24th through the 27th. It'll be in Detroit. Uh, we are, our university is about an hour from Detroit, but we're going to host it in downtown Detroit at the Renaissance Center. And I mean, if you're interested in evolutionary psychology, this really is the place to be at this conference. And so we're super excited about that. Um, and again, we've been doing what we can to get the word out. I um, mean, we'll continue to get the word out, uh, but you can find HBES 2020. Uh, there's a, you can find uh, information about HBES HBES 2020 at the Human Behavior and Evolution Society website, which is hbest.com. Um, then I think uh, you can also find uh, information about HBES 2020 on Facebook and Twitter. Um, so just want to make sure we got that out there. Um, yeah, and actually, uh, quite a few of the people that you interview oh, actually yeah. attend HBEST, uh, the HBEST conferences. So it might be kind of fun for those who are interested in, you know, evolution and human behavior um, to attend the conference, you know, and they could run into a few people they've seen on your, on your YouTube channel. Yeah. We think it's going to be the best conference yet. That's our goal. Yes. <laughs> best attendance ever. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm still pursuing my Darwinian diva. So if you know viewers would like to explore that uh, on Facebook and on Twitter, I'd appreciate it. And I also have a website, Darwinian Diva, as well. Yeah, DarwinianDiva.com. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think uh, I do have a lab a website. Uh, it's my name, ToddKShackelford.com, uh, where you can find a lot of our joint work, yep. as well as information about our students and and uh, our graduate students. Um, so yep, we're you know, uh, we're not super active on social media, although uh, Viviana has been much I'm more trying. active. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, much more active with Darwinian Diva, and, and we're really making a push with HBEST 2020 to make sure we get the word out um, yeah. as best we can. So thank you. Yep, thank you. Okay, great. So I will be leaving all of that in the description box of the interview, and good luck with the conference. I haven't attended yet any HBEST, but I hope that I hope that in the future. I will be able to do so in a way or another because I guess that 
that's the biggest uh, annual conference yeah. on evolutionary psychology, right? Yeah, I mean, we did, we anticipate, you know, 600 or more people, and they're from all over the world, um, and, you know, uh, very established researchers, also new researchers, and it really is a genuinely um, wonderful conference. I mean, it's not just psychologists, it's biologists, anthropologists. Again, as Viviana mentioned, many of the people uh, that you've spoken to. Yeah, it'd be great. Uh, it'd be great to meet you in person, and we'd, we'd be delighted to, uh, to do that. Okay, great. So, guys, Todd, Viviane, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. I know you're very busy, so and you've already been on the show several times, so uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thanks, Ricardo. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you don't like Patreon, you also have the alternatives of Subscribestar and PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Santel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Gondriano, Jane Eninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Giddy, Doctors Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingard, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.